0: You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. If you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Micah here this morning. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And we're going to be looking at this section as the most unexpected expectation. Our kids are with us in here this morning. We do have our toddler's room open for those who need to take a little one out. But it's so good to be gathered all together as one family worshiping. Well, let me ask you here this morning, how many of you are excited about Christmas? Okay. Doesn't sound so exciting out there. Well, if you are excited, maybe you're that person that loves all of the Christmas stuff. You like all the stuff that shows up even way back in July in Costco as they're starting to stock the shelves with trees and all kinds of stuff. Maybe your Christmas heart gets pumping in late August, your eyes light up when you see the very first Christmas commercial of the year, and we can often get really, really excited about Christmas, especially the kids, that's for sure. How about those who are maybe not so excited for Christmas? Maybe you don't want to put your hand up, but uh, yeah, there are those who don't get as excited as the rest. You see those decorations going up, you see the music or you hear the music playing in the stores, and maybe you you turn a little bit grinchy, a little bit scroogey this time of year. Maybe you're just tired of all the hustle and bustle. Maybe you think that Christmas is just a bunch of hype and commercialism uh, and maybe even for some of us, Christmas can bring up past scars and hurts that, uh, that arise at this time of year and they've, they've tainted uh, your perspective of Christmas. And so in our room here this morning in this church, we probably have people on both sides of the spectrum or maybe somewhere in the shades in between for sure. And I would say on both sides though, whether you love it or you hate it or it's just not that exciting What can happen on both sides is that there's a danger of truly missing out. There's a danger of missing the whole point. There's a danger of missing out on the surprising wonder of Christmas. That as those who don't love this season are in danger of missing it because they maybe aren't allowing themselves to truly celebrate the central message of Christmas, there are also those who are in danger of missing out because perhaps they're more excited about all the trappings that come with Christmas, all the things that come along the way. And so my goal this morning, that despite our feelings or our perspective this Christmas is that we would recalibrate our hearts to what it's all about. That as we're just one week away from the big day, that we would take some time today in God's Word to refocus our hearts and to recapture the awe of the most unexpected expectation, which is the true story of Christmas. That the message of the birth of Christ should be the most astonishing. It should be the most exciting news. We could ever have the privilege to even celebrate that regardless of wherever we're at with it right now, that this year we would have a renewed astonishment of what God had done 2,000 years ago. In the womb of a virgin, in a lowly manger, in the obscure and humble village of Bethlehem that he came to save his people from their sin. And so today we're going to look at the words of the prophet Micah which is in the minor prophets. This is in the section of the Old Testament. If you're if you want some kind of location, it's in the later half, the minor prophets section. It's between Jonah and it's between Nahum, two books that we've already studied here as a church. And we're going to look at an astonishing oracle straight from God, a revealing prophecy of the coming King, the coming Messiah, which came some 750 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And so we find that in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. I'm going to read that, and then we're going to pray. Micah 5, verses 1 to 5. Now muster your troops... O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days." Our God in heaven, our Father, we come before you cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We come before you in the strength of the Spirit as he indwells within us, as you indwell within us. And we do come before you today to worship your holy name. We come before you as your people, those who you have saved out of darkness. You have saved us to your marvelous light. And we thank you that still yet today, you are saving people. You are transforming people for your glory, for your namesake. And so as we approach you again during this Christmas holiday, which, which acknowledges and, and looks at your son's birth, we come before that manger today. We come before just looking past, looking back at the history, looking back at that day when the angels were singing, when a virgin gave birth, and when the Son of Man, our King, our Messiah, was born into this world, and how his plan from there was to save his people from their sin. And so we come before you as those who have been saved from our sin, and we want to worship, and we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So friends, let me ask you again, has this message of Christmas become a little bit cloudy? Has it become a little bit crowded out? Have the lights and the tinsel and the presents, or even on the other side of it, the tough things that maybe you've walked through, has has those things stolen your focus or robbed you of the excitement that you could or should be having within the real meaning of Christmas? Well, as Christians should be excited about Christmas for the right reasons, let us retool, let us recalibrate, and let us refocus our hearts by pondering the most unexpected expectation as given by God, again, 750 years before Christ was even born. And so I'm, I'm going to submit to you today four unexpected expectations that should restore true excitement for what Christmas is all about. And the first one is this, that we should be astonished by his surprising obscurity. We should be astonished by his surprising obscurity. And we see that in verse 1 and into the the second half of verse 2 as well. Now, as we parachute into this book of Micah, the brief background that's going on here is that Micah is one of the Hebrew prophets in Judah. He's prophesying in the late 700s BC about the time of a coming time for Jerusalem of great oppression and hopelessness. And as Michael's oracle begins here by saying, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. As Micah begins this oracle By the mention of troops and a siege and a rod striking the cheek of the judge of Israel, he's most likely prophetically referring to the coming fall of Judah that would take place in 586 BC, where the Babylonian armies under King Nebuchadnezzar, according to 2 Kings 25, surrounded the city and the gates of Jerusalem, and they laid siege to her walls, and they eventually captured King. Zedekiah and striking his cheeks, so to speak, by slaughtering his sons in front of him and then plucking out his eyes, which then led to a shameful burning and a destruction of the temple and the captivity of God's people into exile. And so as Micah is envisioning what was going to tragically take place, he says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. He's really saying hopelessly that there is no army to muster, that there is no defense for what's coming their way. And so really there's no use, even though he's saying, muster your troops, oh oh daughter of troops. This is just a, a hopeless state of being, as he knows that the coming destruction is gonna be full he's speaking about absolute humility and the inability of God's people to be able to save themselves, to be able to stand against their enemy, and so they might as well just give up. And so Micah's prophetical tone here begins as one of absolute helplessness and hopelessness and humility. But then, as you see in verse 2, there is a but. There is a but you. But although the outlook is absolutely grim and hopeless for God's people, and that as the future is going to be extremely rough for them, that their God still has a plan. He's got a plan at work to save them, that hope is coming, and that as the final blow and the defeat of this kingdom of Israel came through the failure of her own kings, that there was a new king on the way. But as verse 2 will reveal, this king was going to come from unexpected origins, that this new ruler was going to come from obscurity, or so they think, as the focus turns away from Jerusalem and towards Bethlehem. As the Lord speaks through Micah in verse 2, he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. So again, just as the final blow, as, as the bottom is being foreseen, that the falling out from below the whole history of the kingdom of Israel, this whole remarkable history of the kingship within Israel that goes, goes back most prominently to King David, as the kingdom is going to collapse, as we know from history in 586, God is revealing through Micah that as hopeless and distressing as it all is, that there is a greater king who is coming, that there is one who is to be ruler, he is on the way and that even as David himself was, was promised in second Samuel 7:16, where God promises him, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever that as David's own very son King Solomon As we remember in church history, he failed so horribly in his sin and his immorality to the point that the kingdom was torn away from him and torn away from God's people. The promise of a greater offspring was still held true in the promise-keeping courts of the Almighty. The promise of a greater ruler for a greater kingdom was still coming, which was, of course, promised to be the ultimate king. It's pointing forward to the ultimate Messiah, the the Savior of the world. All the kings failed, but one king was coming who would prevail. And so as Micah is pointing forward to such a king, this promised ruler, the ultimate Messiah, what was unexpectedly expected was that he was going to come from Jerusalem. He wasn't going to come from some lowly town. That was their hope. They wanted a mighty king. They wanted him to come from the decadent and the opulent city of David, but rather what we see here, which was initially unsuspecting for the everyday Hebrew, was that he's actually going to come from somewhere insignificant by any kind of worldly standard. A place that Micah reveals is Bethlehem Ephrathath, which is just a small rural village some eight kilometers southwest of Jerusalem, which in its day really just existed under the shadow of that great city of Jerusalem. This would have been a a small town that would have been considered a backwoods city on the outskirts, a one-horse town, as we might say today. Maybe they would say it's a one-sheep town, something like that. It was a place known for farming. It was a place known for shepherding of sheep. As Micah goes on to say, this is O Bethlehem Ephrathath. and he says something about the city. It's, it's who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Friends, Bethlehem was Nowhere'sville in the eyes of the world. As Micah says, it was too little to be among the clans of Judah. He's pointing out to the fact that even as forty-six cities of Judah are recorded in Joshua fifteen, Bethlehem didn't make the cut. Bethlehem was too small. It was too significant. And so initially, on the surface, it seemed utterly ridiculous that a promised king, a promised ruler, was going to come from such an obscure, backwards kind of a town. But that's where the irony lies in all of this, because as one looks into this little town of Bethlehem, what you find is that although it is nothing by the world's standards, it's exactly where the king should be coming from. That as this little town of Bethlehem was the home of sheep herders and farmers, it was also none other than the very hometown of King David himself. When he was just a shepherd boy. When he was also the least of his own brothers, as recorded in 1 Samuel 17, 12, it says, now David was the son of an Ephrathite. Ephrathite, that's fun to say. Ephrathite means he comes from Ephrathath of Bethlehem in Judah. Named Jesse, who who had eight sons. And as you know the story of David, as he was the least of his brothers, the least of the sons, he was the one who was left behind to tend the sheep while his brothers were, were away at war. Yet as we know the story, he was the one who by God's great help killed the great Goliath, and he was the one who was, who was going to be a man after God's own heart. He was going to be the greatest king of Israel, and he's the one who God promised would himself have an offspring, a king that would come from him that would rule forever and ever. And so, friends, this ultimate king that Micah is talking about, of course, he's a prophet. The Lord God is speaking through him He's not making these things up. He's pointing forward to the coming Messiah. This is who we celebrate at Christmas. He is the one who was born himself, surprisingly, in this little town of Bethlehem. And this is being prophesied about some 750 years before he even came. Well, how do we know that for sure? Well, the Apostle Matthew wrote about this. You want to understand how the Old Testament makes sense when the New Testament gospel writers, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, refer to the Old Testament scriptures. They are the ones who interpret it correctly for us. And so in Matthew 2, 1 to 6... They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and just insert Micah, by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's the one who Micah is prophesying about. It was Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, who was born in this lowly and obscure, insignificant, yet so significant town of Bethlehem. Friends, that was the most unexpected expectation for the people of Israel, and also for you and for me. And that's just the way that God works. That's the way God works. As 1 Corinthians 1.27 testifies, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. As Jesus' Bethlehem beginnings would be seen as weak and and insignificant in the world's eyes. Friends, this is the strength of the gospel. This is the strength and the perfection of God. This has been his plan all along. That a Messiah wouldn't come mounted on a steed, but as we know, as Jesus later rides into Jerusalem, he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was, bo- he was born in the lowliest of towns in Bethlehem. This is the way God works. Bruce Watke comments, he says, he chose Bethlehem to exhibit paradoxically Messiah's inauspicious And yet yet at the same time, his most auspicious origins. So friends, this would have been shocking for the people to hear. As you dig into the word, though, like the Pharisees, like the scribes, they would have discovered this for themselves. This has been the prophecy all along. This has been the plan from day one. It's just being further revealed through the prophet Micah. This is the perfect plan of God that was concealed yet being further and further revealed and yet so perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ that the Messiah would come from obscurity. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a barn, like literally born in a barn. Friends, as this would have astonished them then, it should astonish us all the more now that as Christmas time is here, we should find the time, we should take the time We should make the time amidst all of the hustle and bustle. Take some time to ponder and wonder yet again about all of this. Meditate upon it. Be astonished yet again. Be astonished by his surprising obscurity that he is not the king who was born with a silver spoon. But he was a king born in a town of shepherd hooks. That he isn't a king by any kind of worldly fame, any kind of worldly acceptance, but rather that he is a king of, of lowly, obscure estate. Even when King Herod heard about him, what did he do? He sent out to find him. And why did he send out to find him? Because he was being called the king of the Jews. It was competition. And so he wanted to kill him. Friends, if Christ was alive yet today amongst us again, that would be the world's attitude towards him. He wouldn't be the one who's receiving all the likes and the hearts and the follows. He would still be the the king who is rejected. We know that he was rejected by his own. So friends, let me ask you, why does the world reject him? Even when you think about our storytelling today, in the epics and the stories that we write, just think about just think about how actually we love this story, but yet we reject Jesus. I mean, think about think about uh, Lord of the Rings. How from the insignificance of the Shire came Frodo and, and also Bilbo. Think about if you have read the book Dune or maybe you've watched the movie. Think about the main character Paul, who is. Who is a promised savior of this planet, Arrakis? Think about Luke Skywalker from the Dust Bowls of of Tatooine. Friends, the world loves these stories, but yet when it comes to the true epic, the true story of our savior from obscurity, how the world rejects it. And even for us, friends, even this story can become overshadowed, it can become overcrowded, it can become the side note of the Christmas holiday season. When it should be the main chord, it should be the melody, it should be the driving purpose of it Also, again, I would just say, take the time. Take the time to ponder and pray and seek again the most unexpected expectation found in the Scriptures alone for the purpose of being astonished, being astonished again by his surprising obscurity. But then with that, I would also say this as we're looking further into the text. Point number two is that we should be astonished by his wondrous humility. So looking at verse 2 and into verse 3, as Bethlehem is the obscure location where the Messiah comes from, he also comes to put on flesh. So as Bethlehem speaks about his earthly beginnings, Micah also testifies to his eternal beginnings, so to speak. That as this ruler is the one who is coming forth is from old, from ancient days, it says, this isn't just any ordinary Ephraimite man. This isn't just any sheep herder or farmer. This isn't any, just any normal carpenter's son. No, this is the one who is coming forth from old. This is the one who is greater than that shepherd boy David. This is the one who was before David. This is the one from the beginning and before the beginning. This is the one who Psalm 92 says before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. He's from of old, from ancient of days. That he is both from ancient days in the sense that he is the true offspring of David. Yet he goes beyond that to eternity past. He is the everlasting son of God, the Messiah. And so this promise coming forth is the promise of the promised one. And he shows up in the promised location in Bethlehem. Again, just think about that again. 750 years Before all of this takes place, this is being prophesied. As as revelation is progressively being revealed, as we see him clearer and clearer as the day was coming forth, Micah gives a location. Again, highlighting his humility. As Micah says, he says in verse 3, he says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of God. Friends, as we've been using just these simple candles to mark the advent of Christmas, as Jerusalem was going to crumble in 586, as the temple would be destroyed, as the people would be carried off into exile, and then even knowing further the story that they were actually going to return, that city was never the same. The temple was never the same. And it was a period of ongoing exile of the very presence of God amongst his people. And then even beyond that, there was 400 years of silence with no prophecy. There was no oracles given. It was a season where God gave them up. We see that there. It says, therefore, he shall give them up. He's allowing them to wallow and wander in their own darkness. Until the time, as Micah says... When she who is in labor has given birth, well, who is she? Well, they wouldn't have known. They wouldn't have really had a clue. But as we look back, as we look back at the story of a virgin giving birth, we... We know the full expression, the full fulfillment of this prophecy that as a virgin was met by an angel and as the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and as she conceived and bore the Savior of the world, the King, that as she and her husband Joseph were traveling from, for the census and as they ended up in, in Bethlehem where they were supposed to be, it was finally the time. It was time that the angels and the whole universe have been waiting for. The time that Galatians 4 4 to 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons which as Micah is prophesying here, he's speaking about the gathering of God's sons, the gathering of God's children back to himself. It says, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. All because of his timely incarnation, where infinity married humility forever As the Nicene Creed states, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. Friends, this is the ultimate humility which brings such beautiful unity. That God, the Son himself, would lower himself to be born into the likeness of men and being found in human form, as Philippians says, he comes down to our level. He puts on fingerprints and flesh. He puts on feet that would bring the good news. Yet also, those are feet that would one day be spiked to a cross. He puts on hands that would heal so many, but hands that would be stretched out upon a bloody cross. He would put on bone and muscle and skin That many would just want to touch his garment. But also, this is a body that would receive beatings and whippings and thorns. He also had lifeblood like you and like me. But this blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of many. He put on a mouth to which he glorified God. But a mouth that was stopped by his oppressors. Friends, as infinity put on our humanity, it was a humanity of the lowest humility. As Jesus came from obscurity, he is the ultimate example of humility. Friends, we need to be amazed by such a wondrous humility that God himself would would come down, that he would write himself into our story, that he would put on our flesh. He would put on flesh of those who hate him. And he did that in order to save them. Friends, when it comes to stories, no one writes this story. This is such an unexpected expectation. The story that the world writes over and over again is somehow I can achieve. Somehow I can work my way there. Somehow I can build a tower. I can get to heaven. I can be in the presence of God. But it's only God that writes the story. Actually, no, I'm going to come down. I have to come down because they can't, they can't get to me, as hard as he tried. The world doesn't write that story. And so when it comes to Christmas, as Christmas can, and we think about the child and the manger, our Christ child, it can seem so cute and serene, right? We sing silent night, holy night, but we often maybe don't think so much about the wondrous humility behind it, that he would love us so much, that he would not only be born in such frail innocence, but that he would also become the lowest of slaves for us. Just as he taught us, just as he taught his disciples, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you, you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 26 to 28. Friends, this Christmas... Let us remember the cuteness of a baby in a manger. That's good, but let us not stop there. Although baby Jesus is such an incredible thing to contemplate, remember that. He didn't come just to be cute. No, in fact, he came to be a servant. He came to be a slave. He came to be despised and rejected by men, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, that is the most incredible humility when you stop and try to ponder that you, you cannot grasp the immensity and the wonder of it all That the one who spoke the billions of stars and planets and galaxies into existence in one day would contain himself with such minuscule beginnings within a woman's womb that he would condescend to the confines of the tiniest forming body within the tender care of, of Mary. Friends, the canvas of your mind is far too small to capture these things. It's far too immense. It's far too wonderful. The pages that we could write about this cannot contain such a wonder. of Such infinity brought low to such humility in order to have unity once again with God. Friends, this should never get old. This should never get stale. This should produce the greatest wonder of this Christmas and every Christmas. And so again, carve out some time with your family, with your children, with your loved ones. Share this good news with a neighbor. Make some time this Christmas, this Christmas Eve, this, this Christmas Day to try and capture such wondrous thoughts. How such infinity married humility so that we could have hu- unity with God once again. And then thirdly, as we look at verse 4, Thirdly, let us be amazed by his absolute supremacy. Let us be amazed by his absolute supremacy. Verse 4, it says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Friends, this shepherd language here really ties again to his birthplace and his birthright. That as David was the shepherd king from Bethlehem, the one who was divinely promised a kingdom with no end. Friends, Christ is the ultimate eternal shepherd king. He is the fulfillment of that promise. He is the one who is altogether great to the ends of the earth. Friends, the greatest gift that was ever given was the gift of an eternal shepherd king who was born in a manger. That not only is Christ so sweet and beautiful as a baby, but that he is the all-powerful ruler and king of the entire world and the entire universe. And as the text says that he shall stand and and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, that little Messiah baby wrapped in swaddling cloths is the most powerful, almighty God himself. The one who is coming to stand against our greatest enemy. The one who would stand against Satan and sin and death and all evil. And as he shall stand as well, as he stands for us right now, we remember that as he ascended to the right hand of the Father, after making propitiation for sins, Christ is always at the ready. Christ is standing for his people. Remember how in Acts 7, how when Stephen was being stoned and he was about to die, how he looks into heaven, and what does he see? It says in Acts 7.55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's him. There he is, our Messiah, standing at our defense, standing as ruler, standing as our shepherd. Friends, this is the greatest gift ever. Is that as the Christ child came, we right now have a standing, defending shepherd, a ruler king who loves us and is for us. The same one who over and over commands us throughout the scriptures, fear not, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, afraid, for I am your God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you to the end of the age. And as Hebrews says, he is the one who saves us to the uttermost. He is the ultimate shepherd who protects. And he cares for us to no end. He, he cares for our needs. He's a shepherd who feeds us. He's a shepherd who leads us by green pastures and, and still waters. He's a shepherd who has a rod and a staff to defend us with such eternal, infinite strength. A shepherd who, Micah says here, stands in what? Stands in the strength of the Lord with an all-powerful omnipotent strength. This is the strength of God Almighty. It's, it's the one who Ephesians 1.21 says is, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The one who neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor, nor powers nor height nor depth could separate us from that king. Where no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck us from his hand, we sing. That's the kind of standing shepherd that he is. And that is the kind of strength that he has. That is the powerful standing and the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. That even better than David, even better than David in the story of Goliath, who said, you come to me with the sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. His authority and power are infinitely connected to his intimate relationship within the Godhead, with with God the Father, within the Trinity. And that it is in his name that his people will dwell secure in safety forever. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Friends, as great as David was and as far as he advanced his kingdom of God, and then even as how much further his own son Solomon advanced the kingdom of Israel even further as Jesus came to earth. He came with absolute supremacy. That although he came from such a surprising obscurity and such a wondrous humility, with that he came with absolute supremacy. Just as the angels He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Christ's birth was the inauguration of his kingdom on earth. And as his citizens, his kingdom citizens, you and I, his church, continue in this kingdom. He rules right now. And our job is to proclaim the fame of our ruler, of our king, to the ends of the earth. We are to tell the story of this saving shepherd king to the ends of the earth, to our friends, to our family, to the lost, to the dying, to the whole world. Friends, the whole world needs to hear about the greatest news, about the greatest king ever, the king who was born in this little town of Bethlehem a king who came to save, the one whose kingdom shall be no end, and that one day he is coming back to judge the living and the dead, to destroy all evil, to destroy Satan and all wickedness forever, and he's going to make all things new in a new heavens, in a new earth, a new kingdom where he is going to reign forever and ever, where he will be our God and we will be his people, dwelling secure as Micah prophesied, again, God dwelling with man. Once again, the prophet Habakkuk in 2.14 said, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's a promise. Which then leads to the final unexpected expectation, which is this. That as we are astonished by his surprising obscurity, as we are astounded by his wondrous humility, as we are amazed by his absolute supremacy, let us also be arrested by his promised serenity. As verse 5 says, and he shall be their peace. And he shall be their peace. Whose peace? Whose peace? Well, it's the peace for the people of God. Friends, as Micah was writing this before the exile and amidst this this looming siege upon Jerusalem, they would all be longing for peace, especially in those moments of war and siege. They'd be longing for that shalom, that, that peace with God. And as God's people would be in constant conflict whether that's with Assyria and Babylon and other nations who would come along to pursue and destroy them from Persia to the Greeks and then even to the Romans during Jesus' day. As God's chosen people in God's chosen land, they were a despised people and they were a target for armies and nations of the whole world. And so true seasons of peace for them were far and few between. And as much as they want a true shalom, true rest, true peace, friends, true and everlasting peace cannot be found in the victories of any nation. True and lasting peace can never be found in any kind of worldly treaty or alliances or rulers. No true and everlasting peace that can be experienced right now and forevermore can only be found in a person of peace. It can only be found in the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah, the shepherd king, born to a virgin, born in Bethlehem. And friends, as we are the people of God, as we have been grafted into this promise of old, Micah says prophetically to you and to, and to us that he shall be our peace. He shall be your peace, my peace forever. Just as was read this morning from Isaiah 9, 6-7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And then what does it say? It says Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That is everlasting peace. Friends, as much as this world claims to desire peace, I want peace, I want world peace. We know that it's not until Christ came and also in his return that we will have everlasting peace. For God's people, we have everlasting peace right now. But he's coming back to complete what he started. But yet the world rejects such peace. The world rejects peace because they reject the very person of peace, the prince of peace. Now, just as Micah prophesies, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is our peace. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Just as the angel sang of the birth of Christ. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Friends, each one of us in this room, every person on this planet throughout the course of history are born as rebels. We are born sinners. And in our rebellion... We have been waging war against God from birth. Right back to the story of Adam and Eve rebelling against God. That is our very nature, and we continued on in, the, in that. But it only comes through a Savior's birth, it only comes through the perfect finished work of that little baby wrapped in swaddling cloths who would grow up and be nailed to a cross who would die for the sins of you and me, who would suffer the wrath of God because of all the sin that that we have been storing up, the wrath of God that we have been storing up against him. The only way that you can have true everlasting peace, true shalom again with God is through the message of Christmas. It's through the person of Jesus Christ. It's through the Prince of Peace. And so brothers and sisters, Again, I'm going to ask you, how excited are you for this Christmas season? But much more than that, how excited are you when it comes to pondering and wondering what he has done? What lengths God went so that you could have peace with him? So I may mean, the prophecy of Micah about a little town of Bethlehem Be that much more real in our hearts this season. May the surprising obscurity of our Messiah's beginnings cause our hearts to be astonished yet once again. And may the wondrous humility of infinity marrying humility so that we can have unity with God. May that reignite true joy this year. Even if it's hard. You can find joy that surpasses all understanding in Jesus Christ alone as you ponder the beauty and the glory of the true Christmas story. And may his absolute supremacy and power and security for us drive us all the more to follow and trust him and believe in him. And may this Christmas be one Christmas closer to that promised serenity, that eternal peace, That we would truly long for that day. That 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 would arrest our hearts every morning. And may our Messiah, our Shepherd King, be proclaimed as the greatest news to the ends of the earth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. As we turn to a minor prophet. And what even may be in a section of Scripture that often gets overlooked and, and not studied deeply. As we look back to your power, how your Holy Spirit wrote the Scriptures, how your Spirit spoke through this, this prophet Micah, and as he's looking forward to there's a time of great trouble and distress and siege. And how much the people would want to make peace, they would want to experience peace. They would want peace with God. How? Through these words, you have revealed to us the location, the one, the shepherd king, the Messiah king, who has long promised to come to save his people. So we pray that this Christmas for us as a church, that we would just embrace this truth all the more, that we would take the time and remember and rejoice, that we would sing songs that would just rejoice in God our Savior and we pray that you would do further work in our hearts as you were amongst us and as we have a standing ruler king right now interceding for us and it was coming back soon to take us home. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.